Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the fifth episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Today's topic is how not to be fooled in the age of disinformation. With me is David Robert Grimes. He's the author of The Irrational Ape, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and How Critical Thinking Can Save the World. The book is published by Simon & Schuster. David Robert Grimes is a cancer researcher, physicist, and writer. He contributes to outlets including PBS, the BBC, The Guardian, The Irish Times, and The New York Times. This is his first book. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So uh, get us started. Just give us a little nutshell, brief summary. What's the book about? Uh, It's pretty much as it says on the tin. One of the things that fascinates me about the era in which we live is that we have access to all the world's information, quite literally at our fingertips. And yet, that same freedom allows misinformation and falsehoods to perpetuate at a rate we've never witnessed before in human history. So actually trying to work out how we become less wrong and make more informed choices is something that's fascinated me for a long time. So to understand that, you have to really delve into why do we make mistakes in the first instance? How are we misled by propaganda or or lies in many cases? And how can we maybe avoid falling victim to such things in future? Okay. Well, I confess I chose the book in part because I, I love the title. Um, I've often given speeches where I've uh, drawn on Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am, and suggested that, you know, I feel, therefore I am, or I'm utterly confused, therefore I exist, might be a little closer to the truth. Uh, the book is also wonderfully written. There's a lot of uh, great stories and anecdotes and quotes. And I'm going to go there with my, my first question, I guess, because I always love saying the idiomatic sayings that come from a real... Uh, you know, Genesis. For instance, in America, the term honkies is sometimes used by African Americans as a put down of whites. Turns out honkies comes from 1920s Harlem, where white men dating black women would not come in to meet the family. They would stay in the car and honk the horn to say that they had arrived. In your case, uh, one of the wonderful antidotes is the origins of the term snake oil. Can you just tell us, tell listeners briefly about that? Absolutely. There was a there was a gentleman back in back in the eighteen uh, hundreds who literally sold snake oil. So he was a bit of an entrepreneur, a bit of a showman. He was definitely in the Barnum mold, and he had this amazing act where he claims that he'd been thought uh, mystical healing arts by a medicine man uh, in somewhere in I think Arizona, and that this medicine man thought him that if he squeezed snakes, literally wrung their bodies, that that oil had curative powers. And this was during the time they were building railways all across America. And one of the most common complaints that workers had were aching, tired bodies. And this magical elixir, literal snake oil, was sold by this guy, uh, Clark Stanley. And he became known as the Rattlesnake King. At the Chicago World Trade Fair, he was there killing, uh, killing snakes in front of amused onlookers. 
But the thing was, apart from the fact that the snake oil literally did nothing, it was a very expensive placebo. Uh, when analytical chemists actually analyzed it, and this is like the genesis of the FDA, they found that it was mainly a mixture of mineral water and turpentine. And even though snake oil faded into obscurity, the name has remained as a catch-all for medicines that don't actually work or are in some way fraudulent. And that actually originated in many different languages at the same time. For example, the term quack is from the Dutch quack salver, someone who uh, sells or salves to people. And uh, charlatan is from the French, charlatan. So it's funny how all these terms evolved independently, but refer to the same kind of behavior. Sure. Um, so, so, which I, I all which I, I I love, you know, driving back to the roots of these terms. Um, well, speaking of snake oil and doing honor to your title, the age of disinformation. I think we're going to have to delve into uh, Facebook and social media here a little bit. Um, tell me about what you think the dynamics are and why we are so susceptible to social media, and even which specific emotions you think they are are leveraging in the case of social media. I think as humans, we have a tendency to react first and reflect later. We emote and then we think. And unfortunately, social media is something that we're not entirely prepared for because the kind of claims that get shared and all the research we have on this shows that things that scare us, things that make us angry or emotional or outraged or disgusted gain far more traction on social media than more you know, non, non-emotive claims. And so what disinformation tends to be or, or falsehoods tends to look like is they look like a claim that will scare you. Maybe uh, something frightening. Maybe it appeals to part of your almost uh, visceral instincts and you're scared. That's a real problem because it allows horrific falsehoods to kind of perpetuate. And because we don't think first, because we emote, we want to protect ourselves, that makes us incredibly vulnerable to people that might want to manipulate us in some fashion. Okay. So in other words, everybody feels before they think. And um, it sounds like from your answer, it's it's anger and fear uh, that really seem to be the key drivers here. Do I have that right? I think so. I don't think it, it overall, it's not positive stories that get this kind of traction. It's why if you're seeing things uh, like COVID-19, for example, the kind of things being shared are usually quite frightening, even if they seem on one level not to be. For example, I'm dealing a lot with people selling fake cures for COVID-19. But in order to sell those cures, they have to lead with a frightening claim that the government is lying to you or that the scientists are lying to you and there's a cure and it's hidden away. So that's what they grab your attention with. And the sales are done on the back of that. So you absolutely fear and disgust are very powerful motivators. Okay, well, there was recently a piece that I read about uh, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook had commissioned a study to see what really drove the traffic. And it was, you know, essentially creating apprehensions and, uh, you know, disgust and anger and, and all this, uh, you know, roiling <laughs> concerns. Uh, and he shelved the re- report. Uh, he didn't essentially want to deal with it. Um, I mean, your, your, your book is talking about trying to save and improve the world. You know, if he's a good citizen, what do you think is 
you know, what should Zuckerberg do? What what could he plausibly do? I mean, he has a business to run. He's obviously not going to want to lose his traffic. W- where's the fine line here in, in a practical sense that might be commendable and yet uh, financially, you know, won't put him out of business? That's an interesting one because Zuckerberg is, 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 a, is a case in point. He has, as you point out, he has been repeatedly shown that his platform has allowed the perpetuation of misinformation and they have taken a very hands-off approach to it however there's a there's a there's two arguments to be considered here there are ways to still be a profitable business and also to have some respect for the integrity of our informational hygiene uh, zuckerberg's say, saying that he's not willing to 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 step in is actually an abdication of responsibility if you for example profiteer even indirectly, off the trafficking of, of false information that can do real substantial societal harm. And I'm thinking in my head, uh, a very tangible example of that is the anti-vaccine movement, who are absolutely buoyed by social media. If you don't take proactive steps to do anything about that, you cannot wring your hands and say, it's not my responsibility. You are absolutely profiteering off it and the traffic that creates. So yes, it is. So should business business interests be uh you know on the same par as societal health i would say no okay and, and if you take social because i don't want to just pick on zuckerberg necessarily but if you take uh, advertising traditional advertising you take traditional media is there a way in which social media you know even beyond zuckerberg is playing this game differently in terms of racketing up emotions versus those other two things that Maybe we become a bit accustomed to at this point, but surely are in the emotional game as well. And absolutely they are. But one of the things that traditional media outlets um, have, uh, they might view it as an anchor around their neck, but it's very important. One of the things that they do have is uh, a responsibility to present information and an independent body that will assess them on that. For example, if a newspaper goes and prints something that is untrue, they open themselves up to legal problems. Um, Facebook and Twitter and all these platforms and Instagram, whatever else you like, they both exist as a publisher, but then disclaim any of the responsibilities that a publisher should entail. So they're making, they're taking the good part, the money-making part, while totally disregarding the responsibilities that come with that. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's true that Congress has been very slow to recognize that obviously with the news feed and so forth, uh, these people are, you know, they are media platforms. They are not simply enabling people to connect with each other. Uh, and, you know, the news feed is one of the most important aspects of Facebook. You know, your book goes into all sorts of wonderful instances and examples of people's foibles and illogical fallacies. I'm a big fan of behavioral economics. Can we, you know, we, we're not, we can't cover all of them, but can you take me to, through maybe two or three or four uh, of these, you know, most seminal uh, problems that we have as human beings trying to think our way through situations? And I'd be particularly interested in how you might pair them with emotions if there's a particular emotion that a, a given fallacy, uh, you know, seems to exploit or depend on. Sure. One of the ones I think is really, really interesting is... Uh, our need to understand the world around us, which is totally, you know, every human has it to some degree, and to feel comfortable in our beliefs. But one of the things that is interesting is when we come across information that upsets our apple cart, that, that you know, takes it out of our comfort zone. 
And one of the interesting responses of this is a thing called cognitive dissonance. That uncomfortable feeling you get when someone brings you information that conflicts with what you you subscribe to, what you believe in. And discomfort there is the interesting term. So when you were faced with this kind of discomfort, say you believe very strongly a particular religious belief or maybe social or belief, some, some, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's your worldview. You imbibe it. It is part of you. And then someone presents you information that upsets that. You have two options then. To quell that dissonance, that discomfort, you can either um, synthesize that new information, reflect on whether you should update your views, and move on. That's very cognitively expensive. People don't like doing that. What is much easier to do is to deny or minimalize or reject that new information. So that means oftentimes when we should change our mind, we don't. And that's one way of dealing with discomfort. But discomfort and conflict themselves are interesting because they, they usually tell us something needs to be looked at. Oftentimes we just choose not to look at something because it is easier to preserve our sense of comfort, even if we shouldn't. Yeah, which brings to mind that wonderful quote from Upton Sinclair, who said, you know, um, you know, it's hard for a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Um, so, yeah, the reasons can be one's belief system. It can be financial. I mean, there, there's all sorts of causes. And, and yes, the cognitive energy required to actually rethink the proposition. Uh, that's that's not something people necessarily favor. Is there is there another example? I, I love cognitive dissonance. I think it's so central to uh, how we live our lives, unfortunately or not. Oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. One or two others. Yeah. Actually, the, you, you reminded me of the Paul Simon quote, which I use a lot, all lies in jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Um, yep. So that is that is one element, that cognitive dissonance. The other kind of things that I find very interesting is that we tend to cherry pick. And this, this all goes back to it. I think when I was writing the book, one of the things that surprised me, uh, it shouldn't have surprised me in retrospect, was just quite how huge a role human psychology plays in how we understand information. So, and social media, by the way, we do this as well. We share stories about things that we agree with, uh, opinions that we want to amplify, things that make us feel validated. We all have this internal need for validation and the media we consume and the media we share reflects that. Now we've become the curators of our own media, which is where social media comes in. And that's a real problem because there's no fact checking on that process. We're literally cherry picking things that suit our narrative, our purposes. And I think that's really fascinating. There's incredible examples of that. For example, something that I find very, very interesting is uh, weaponization of information. So one of the things that backfired horribly in the 1980s, and I, I find this fascinating, was during the Cold War, um, Russia and America obviously had were at loggerheads, and Russia were particularly good at spreading disinformation, which might have current echoes as well. But one, sure. <laughs> of, the, one, of, one of the things they used to do was they couldn't you know, sway everything, but they could foster distrust. And that was a really important thing to do. So the, what they would do is they would give money to conspiracy groups to spread their beliefs further, whether they believed water fluoridation was killing us all or mind control or that JFK was killed by you know, Lyndon Johnson. They funded all these kind of groups. And these groups would have been unaware they were being funded by Russian assets. 
but this was something they did to discourage stuff, uh, discourage people from trusting to foster a sense of distrust. That backfired spectacularly in the mid-1980s. When AIDS first came to America, uh, the first cluster of cases, they didn't know what it was, and they called it GRID, which is gay-related immunodeficiency. Now, very soon they realized this didn't just affect gay men, it was affecting all sorts of people. Um, and it was mainly centered around America at that time. And the Soviet secret services decided, okay, this is this is a great idea. We can we can capitalize on this. So they started a rumor that AIDS was a man-made virus. And they were very good at getting that into certain journalists' hands and getting it perpetuated. And it was doing severe harm, except reality doesn't give a damn what you believe. <laughs> a few years later, AIDS came to Russia. And Russia had to ask for the help of American virologists. And a lot of back-channel diplomacy was done where Gorbachev's government would abandon this propaganda claim that AIDS was a man-made virus in return for help from American virologists. They actually apologized for it in 1991. It was called Operation Infection. But I find that really interesting because to this day, some of the communities worst hit by HIV and AIDS still are very sympathetic to the idea that AIDS is a man-made disease. For example, the African-American community, a survey done I think about six years ago, found that about 50% of people surveyed from the, those uh, subpopulations definitely felt sympathy towards that belief. And you can understand that because they were so horrifically hit by it and that the Reagan administration essentially didn't want anything to do with them. So I think people feeling alienated, isolated, and people taking advantage of this, this is a really common thing that we see a lot. Sure. And I, I happen to be based in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where we've just had the death, the killing of George Floyd. So the uh, African-American community and its level of trust or distrust for the cops and uh, you know the federal government beyond that uh, is certainly palatable. Um, you know, you know, distrust, we're really talking about contempt, which I think is probably the most toxic of the emotions. Uh, when uh, John Gottman did his love lab at the University of Washington, Seattle, uh, he was looking at what emer what emotion was most corrosive to marriages, most predictive of its failure, and it was distrust, contempt, that you just didn't hold the other party in respect. So, uh, you know, what Putin and others trafficking in disinformation intentionally are doing is, is uh, emotionally very severe. So your book um, subtitled mentions saving the world. How about saving someone's job, so to speak, or the efficiency of the workplace? So let's imagine for a moment you put yourself in the shoes, uh, David, of being uh, you know, the director or manager of a department office uh, in the workplace. What kinds of things might you, just in general terms, not the specifics of the staff you got on hand, but just in general terms, as a manager, what kind of fallacies are you highlighting in this book that you would, as a manager, particularly be on the guard against trying to ensure the the, the, the nice functionality of the workplace? I think you have to be very careful. Now, I again, my management experiences are limited, so I, I don't want to uh, pretend I'm an expert when I'm not. But I think you have to be aware of a few things. And I think that even when people hold positions, there's often an emotional element behind them. And they may not even be consciously aware of that. But for example, if you're correcting someone, there's a way of doing that without making people feel demeaned. And I notice that when I do see a lot of conflicts, particularly on social media, um, that people often 
take umbrage to each other, not necessarily to the content of what they're saying, but to the way it's being delivered. So it's not enough just to say, well, this is the right answer. It's also very important to bring people on board with you to get to that right answer. And the kind of fallacies you can fall for, um, the most common one, I guess, in those positions are arguments from authority. That because someone is an authority, they're an expert, um, or they have expertise in a field, that they are necessarily right or always right. And that can be a very costly mistake, particularly because the definition of expertise is so flexible in some situations. And we are seeing that all the time. I mean, who is an expert in different fields? Well, sometimes it's very clear cut. A lot of the times it is not. And I think these are things that as a manager, if I was managing, I would want to be aware of. Well, I remember one point in my career, I was meeting with a, a woman and she's, I was a market researcher for many years. And she said, uh, yes, I had an incident where I was called on the carpet by a vice president who basically started out by telling me I was an idiot and then explained that I needed to rerun my survey in a way that would prove that he was correct. And he said, don't, don't come back through the door until you got 95% in support of my idea because I'm in in a battle with another vice president and it's his idea versus mine idea. And of course I have to win. So that, that would certainly suggest a lot of affirmation of what you just said. Uh, you do have a section in your book actually called lies, damned lies and statistics, a uh, well-known phrase uh, as a market researcher, which I was for many years. What, what should those folks be particularly on guard against? Oh, that's, that's, that's a, that's a whole treasure trove. If we delve into that, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the most amazing thing about statistics, and I use them in my career a lot as a scientist, is that uh, I forgot the famous statistician who said this, but he said something along the lines of statistics are a bit like a bikini. Uh, you know what they what they conceal, and as I said, what they what they show is 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 interesting, but what they conceal is vital. And <laughs> I've mangled that quote now. There you go. But one of the things that I there is a truth to that. So we all are so reliant on numbers and we think intuitively that we understand them. But there's a nuance and a complexity. So one of the big risk factors I, I often t tell people is um, to be very aware of the context in which figures are being reported. For example, you might read a figure that says 40% of people die in a hospital and then you might find that very few people die in a post office, but you would be entirely wrong to think that you would get better medical treatment in a post office than a hospital. And of course, of course, the, the confounding variable in the background right there is the fact that people tend to go to hospitals when they're very, very sick, which increases their chances of, of, of dying because they are very, very sick. The classic example that everyone gives, and I love it, is that in, in, when ice cream sales go up, deaths by drowning go up as well. And if you were naive, you might say, well, are ice creams causing drowning? No, the common variable there is that they're both happening in summer. People go swimming a lot more in summer and they buy a lot more ice cream in summer as well. So of one of the big things that we see a lot, and I see a lot, particularly when I'm debunking things, which I do a lot of the time, is that people will take a statistic in isolation and forget the context for it. You really need to understand numbers in context, otherwise they're meaningless. To take a very topical example at the moment, there's a very important discussion being had about police brutality in the United States in particular. And one of the figures I have seen, obviously, we're, we, we've just mentioned that poor man who was, who was well, from, from video murdered by people. Yeah, George Floyd. Yep. Absolutely. And one of, one of the things that people sometimes say is, oh, well, more white people in America are shot by police than black people. 
which is true, but misleading. For example, I did the figures on this the other day on Twitter. If there is 220 odd million white people in America, and we know about 2000-ish since 2015 have been killed by police, that sounds like a lot. About 1,300 have been killed by black people have been killed by police in the same period. But there is only 32 million black people or 37 million black people. So when you do the ratios, you're actually three times more likely to die by the hands of a police officer if you're black than white. But in isolation, that number, oh, more white people are killed by police than black people, seems very telling. You need the context for that to make any sense of it. So, sure. Well, you know, in market research, I was always looking at a couple of factors. One is, did the data I got back just make sense at a gut level? Was there something, you know, skewered here just potentially? The other one is, you know, we often were contrasting in our case uh, what people said versus how they felt as they revealed through their facial expressions. You had such tremendous lip service answers uh, that just, you know, as if everybody was supposedly on board and the advertising was infallible and so forth. Very, very hard to believe, but it's, you know, it was a very reassuring number to go back to your point earlier and, you know, something that the clients were happy to hold on to. If we move to the personal life, uh, let's imagine now you're not the manager of an office, you're on a date. Uh, which fallacies maybe particularly irk you uh, if you were dating someone and you saw these uh, being manifest? Which ones would make you flee as opposed to uh, embrace the dating opportunity? Uh, you're assuming I'm sensible enough to flee when I see a red flag. I'm <laughs> not, not actually sure I am. It might depend how pretty your companion is or, or how witty they are or, or entertaining. But um, Fair enough. There, there are a few things that people do uh, that that will that will make me pass comment, I suppose. And one of them again is is cherry picking. It's a really important thing. If we're having a conversation about something in society or something, and people rely on anecdote far too much, it, it will always kind of get get me a little bit annoyed because I'm like, look, um, oftentimes people kind of fall into survivorship bias. Like they'll they'll tell you that they always play the lottery because. You know, they know a load of people that won the lottery or won prizes on it. And I'm like, yes, but you're not dealing with the hundreds of thousands of people more who lose all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I think that pe people can be very selective. Or One of the things that really bothers me sometimes is when people don't, they look at their success and they think that there's something intrinsic about them that has made them successful. And of course, there is an element of that. But people who downplay the role of luck, circumstance, opportunity, uh, and, and kind of put those virtues on themselves without any cognizance of the fact that actually there's a lot more behind it. That that bothers me as well, and it does occasionally make me pass comment. Okay, well, as I believe you said in the book, the biggest lies in life are the ones we tell ourselves. And uh, accruing all good luck to one's skill set is <laughs> certainly one of those lies, potentially. Oh, well, and you can see it if you look at figures in entertainment or dare I say politics, not looking at any American president in particular, do you look at those people and say they are the very best people for the job? Or do you say a series of circumstances got them there and a lot of luck? And I think luck plays a much bigger role in stochasticity and randomness than any of us are comfortable embracing. We all have an aversion to randomness. We want to think there's a plan. We want to think there's a design. I mean, I deal with conspiracy theorists all the time, and that's one of their big motivations. They want to think there's a grand plan to the noise and the chaos of life, and there probably isn't. And that's a, <laughs> that that can yeah. be frightening. That can be scary. I understand that, you know. 
So I'm going to come back to our, our president here in a moment. I'll, I'll uh, tiptoe gingerly to that topic when the time comes. But uh, uh, your subtitle mentions critical thinking. How about critical feeling? If you were to uh, you know say to the world, these are my top three suggestions, and you certainly had some suggestions toward the close of the book as to how to best address uh, the irrational ape and all of us. But um, you know, taking it both on a critical thinking and a critical feeling uh, point of view, what might be the recommendations? I would say, and I certainly conclude with this, that um, conversations are far more important than debates. Right? You don't ever change anyone's mind. You give people the tools to change their own mind, and sometimes they give you the tools to change yours. Right? No one is ever going to come around to your way of thinking if you beat them over the head and basically make them feel inferior because we're humans first, you know, this, we don't like that. And that's understandable. Um, so one of the things that I would certainly say is if you want to change the world, it's not enough just to be right. It's enough to make people see why that matters and to give people the freedom to change their mind, not to castigate people for being wrong or for, you know, being mistaken or ourselves indeed sometimes, but to, embrace people changing their mind. We should normalize changing people's minds. It's really, really important. And and changing our own. Because if your views don't evolve and adapt with the information, you're probably doing something wrong. But we've been told since recorded history that people that uh, change their mind are flip-flopping or U-turners or in some way weak. That's not true at all. We should always be changing our minds. The second thing I would say is that we are not our ideas. We have an emotional attachment. It's a thing that Dan Cahan calls identity protective cognition, that we are our, our, our ideas. Um, we become very emotionally attached to them. They define us in some ways. But that's actually probably not the right thing to do because that makes it really hard to change our mind. We should be really promiscuous with our ideas and we should change them as the evidence dictates. And there should be no harm or fear in doing that. But that's currently the inverse of what we have that we kind of ascribe some kind of magical values to these beliefs, when in fact they're just ideas and they should be changed when it's right to change them. And we should have no fear and we should feel no weakness doing so. We should only feel um, that we've let ourselves down if we refuse to change our mind when the evidence compels us to. Okay, yeah, essentially the importance of being flexible and, and trying out other tangents, the promiscuous intellectually, but probably hopefully emotionally faithful to one's value system, especially if they're, they're good ones. Um, so I am uh, guess I'm going to tiptoe toward Mr. Trump. <laughs> so as I was reading the book, I uh, was astonished by the, you know, before the CIA, there was something called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS during World War II. And I'm going to read from your book, the assessment, the emotional profile they had of Adolf Hitler. And I read it and I went, oh my God, this this sounds an awful lot like somebody I see on the national news every night who occupies the <laughs> White House. So I'm going to, I'm going to read the paragraph and, uh, I'm not going to venture further than that because uh, I will leave that to you as my guest to decide what you want to say. Uh, but here's, here's what was the OSS assessment. His primary rules were never allow the public to cool off, never admit a fault or wrong, never concede there may be some good in your enemy, never leave room for alternatives, never accept blame, concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong 
people will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. That's quite an astonishing paragraph. Fake news. Uh, no, I joke. Uh, <laughs> but, absolutely. But that is a blueprint for tyranny. That is what you do. And it's why that fascist movements throughout history and proto-fascist movements before fascism was recognized as a, uh, have always denigrated intellectualism. They have always supported a, a non-thinking kind of conforming approach to things. And yes, a certain American president absolutely embodies an awful lot of that. Um, he's a man of possessed of a very fragile ego. I think that's probably not a controversial thing to say. Um, but what is interesting is how transparent that is, how many leaders we've seen like that before. There's a thing called illusory truth. And the sad thing is if you repeat a falsehood often enough, even people that know better will become more sympathetic towards it. Uh, Napoleon famously was reported to have said that there's only one figure in all of rhetoric worth a damn, and that was repetition, repetition, repetition. We are not naturally very good at parsing claims, but we have to become a lot better at it because otherwise demagogues and charlatans and tin pot tyrants actually can control us. Critical thinking is the only shield we have against that. Well, and, you know, and as opposed to tyranny, and this has certainly been an issue as we in America go through COVID-19, the economic, you know, fallout from that, and, and now all of the uh, protests uh, spurred by the George Floyd killing, uh, and that's compassion. And you did in your, you know, kind of the close of the book, um, you know, bring forth really another emotion. We were talking early on about fear and anger and disgust. Happiness is that you can embrace others. Uh, you can embrace the idea that you might be wrong, uh, that you can learn and grow as a person, that you can be kind to yourself and not, you know, assume your identity in your ideas and therefore feel like you're eternally vulnerable if you were to change an idea. Uh, anything more you wanted to say on the on the front of compassion? It just seems to me happiness is certainly an emotion that comes up in social media at times when everyone loves the, the, the kitty video, but uh, it seems to be overshadowed by and large by the other emotions we discussed earlier. There is so much to be said for compassion because we need to be compassionate with other people, but we need to be compassionate with ourselves. When I get something wrong, I and like a lot of people, I beat myself up an awful lot about it. Um, but that's actually not the right thing to do in many cases. Most of the time, it's better to go, right, I made a mistake and I am going to learn from that and not do it again. And to treat other people the same way, not to denigrate people if they are coming from a different place or if they haven't had the opportunities we've had to realize why they're mistaken. One of the most important conversations I have, a lot of my work is dealing with um, medical conspiracy theories and debunking them. So I deal with people who are in the anti-vaccine movement an awful lot of the time. And I make a distinction between some of them. There are those who perpetuate this false stuff, uh, who spread conspiracy theories. They're often driven by a sense of uh, essentially narcissism, that they want to feel like they have special knowledge and to have people listen to them. But there are other people who are victims of that. Maybe the parent who doesn't know what to believe and, and falls into this. I have had some very, very important conversations with vaccine-hesitant parents. And those conversations have been important because they can tell me their fears. And I can sit there and go, okay, cool. And I can see where they're coming from. But I can plant the seed of an idea into their head about, look, these fears are totally legitimate. It's okay to be scared. Here's why 
we don't think that. And when you have that one-on-one compassionate conversation, people go away. And oftentimes I do hear from them later on and they have changed their mind and they did get their sons or daughters vaccinated, or they did leave that Facebook group that was telling them not to. And I think that if I just go in there with a bullhorn telling people they're wrong and that they're stupid, well, they're not going to respond very well to that. So compassion is really, really important to get both what you want and what's best for everyone and to indeed change your own mind when you are wrong. Sure. Well, I think, you know, compassion ties into happiness and happiness is I hug, I embrace, but it also means you're open. And that openness seems to me so essential for us to survive and thrive as people. So before we close here, your book is full of so many wonderful quotes. Is there one favorite that we haven't had a chance to touch on today, one that you want to kind of wrap this up with and, and why you're choosing that one? Oh, that's 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 uh that's a that's a really good a good question, and I'm like I, now that you put me on the spot, I'm a little bit uh, paralyzed, like a rabbit in the headlights. Um, there's there's a quote by Leon Festinger in it, which I love, and I'm going to try and do it from memory. And he said, um, he said, a man with a conviction is a hard man to change. You know, um, show him facts or figures, and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic, and he fails to see your point. <laughs> and I, 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 he goes through this, and it's it's a longer quote than that. But Leon Festinger was one of the first psychologists to study uh, motivated reasoning: why people deliberately hold on to beliefs that are bad for them, or not true, or for whatever reason. And he fascinates me because he a lot of the stuff he he talks about is so relevant today. Uh, but his actual break in studying this is he studied a UFO cult in the 1950s, and they believed the world was going to end on December 21st, 1954. And he sent some PhD students to go and live with them. And um, a spoiler alert to anyone who, who has me following history, the world did not actually end on December 21st. <laughs> uh, so what would you expect? You'd expect these people who have given up their worldly possessions, who had you know given up everything to join this cult, that they would suddenly maybe feel sheepish. or They actually became evangelists. They started believing that it was their faith that had saved the world. They became deeper believers, even when their belief had been disproven. And Leon, uh, so they, they found a way of doubling down, basically. Absolutely. And Leon Festinger wrote a book about this called When Prophecy Fails. And he really dug into it. And this is called motivated reasoning, when you will do anything to preserve a belief, even when the evidence doesn't allow for it. And it really fascinates me. And I think, uh, you know, it's an insight into how we all, we all sometimes behave and how we probably shouldn't. Sure. Well, on that somber, sober note, I'm going to close the show. I want to thank you, David, for being my guest today on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, This has been episode number five called How Not to Be Fooled in the Age of Disinformation. To check out other episodes or my books, lectures, additional activities, including being on other people's podcasts, uh, feel free to visit my website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for David, you can send it to me at my email address. That's dhill at sensorylogic.com. Finally, I'd like to close every episode with an epigram. And fittingly, this time I'm going to say that the epigram is from Mark Twain and that the epigram is, a lie will fly around the whole world while the truth is getting its boots on. And yet when I started checking into the background of this quote, it might actually belong to Jonathan Swift, 
or to somebody else. We don't necessarily know who made up this quote. So that's your last piece of disinformation for today. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you.